Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 47. That is the text for this morning. The title of the message is Love Without Limits, Part 2. We began last week looking at what it means to love without limits. Specifically, we talked about the fact that to love without limits means that you and I have absolutely zero right to retaliate when we're wrong. Jesus puts his finger on the pride nerves, that that nerve, that desire to want to settle the score and to get even with someone who would injure or hurt or harm us in some way. Jesus takes that option off the table for believers. And so he puts his finger squarely on our, our desire to bite back. He puts his finger on our money. He puts his finger on our time. He puts his finger on our ability to go the second mile, to endure with others. What he's going to put his finger on this morning is our self-love nerve. We all love ourselves. We don't have any problems, as a matter of fact, loving ourselves. The problem comes into play. The problem comes into view when we begin to talk about loving others. And not just loving others, but loving those who don't love us back. That's where the rubber meets the road. That's where the challenge is in the Christian life. In August of 1983, 27-year-old Russell Stendhal was taken into hostage, taken into the jungle of Colombia, South America, by a band of Marxist guerrilla soldiers called the FARC. And for nearly five months, he learned what it really means to love one's enemies. In a letter that had actually been written that got home, he wrote, I'm in danger of only losing my life, but they are in danger of losing their souls. Through kindness, Russell befriended his guards. One day, the commander told him, we can't kill you face to face because we like you. And so we'll have to kill you in your sleep. Though God enabled Russell to graciously forgive his captors and his would-be executioners, for the next ten days, he barely slept a wink. Night after night, a machine gun was repeatedly thrust into his face under the mosquito net, but the guards couldn't bring themselves to pull the trigger. January 3rd, 1984, when Russell was released, he said goodbye to his captors, and tears filled some of their eyes. Russell tells this story. He recounts this story in a book that he has written entitled, Rescue the Captors. And the reason for that title is because Russell realized that his captors were much more prisoners than he was. There was a chance that he would be released. But for his captors, they sat in spiritual darkness. Spiritual captivity. You see, returning evil for good, that's satanic. Returning good for good is simply human. But returning good for evil, that's divine. And it doesn't happen naturally. We don't see that taking place in the world in which we live. The natural response, even for us as genuinely converted believers, having been born again, having been given a new heart and the indwelling Holy Spirit, we still struggle with this. We still struggle with repaying evil for evil, but returning good for evil. That's the mark of a growing believer. The mark of a growing believer. We'll see that take place. We'll see the call for that in our text this morning. Let me encourage you, stand with us as we read God's Word. Matthew here is recording Jesus' words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 47, and this is what is said. 
You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great God stands forever. You may be seated. Point number one in your outline this morning would encourage you to take notes. Is this. Jesus calls us to love our neighbor. And friends, that includes our enemies. Jesus calls us to love our neighbor which subsequently includes our enemies. Let your eyes look back to verses 43 and 44. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Again, we have no problem loving our friends. There's there's not a problem in the world there. But to love our enemies, that is quite a different matter, is it not? Where did this law come from? Remember, Jesus is saying, you have heard that it was said. And so obviously, he's repeating back the prevailing thought of the day. He's, he's repeating back the, the prevailing view of the day. But where did this law come from? You shall love your neighbor. We'll see that the addition was to hate your enemy, because to hate your enemy doesn't even uh, reveal itself in the Old Testament law. But this law is, appears to us back in Leviticus chapter 19, Verses 17 and 18, Moses writes, he says, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. Now, that was the law. That was the Levitical law that was to direct and guide Israel, God's people. Now look back at verses 43 and 44 and see how that law got twisted. Jesus summarizing says, You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And then Jesus elevates the law, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You see, notice that Moses says nothing about hating your enemy. And so why does Jesus include this language then? Why why does Jesus say, love your neighbor... Or repeat it this way, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, I think the reason that Jesus repeats it that way is because Jesus is simply summarizing again the prevailing thought of his day. In other words, he refers to the way the scribes and the Pharisees interpreted this Levitical law, not what the actual law itself taught. You see, the Pharisees on one hand taught that one should love those who are near and dear to them, but they added to the law that Israel's enemies were to be hated. What they did there is they simply just made an inference that was not an allowable inference to be made. If God tells us to love our neighbors, then they falsely concluded that must mean or that must give me license to then hate my enemy. But the Old Testament nowhere says. The Old Testament in not one spot commands that we shall hate our enemy. Now, having said that, that doesn't mean the Old Testament teaching regarding enemies is always easy to interpret. 
oftentimes you've got the Canaanites and the Amorites, and you've got those whom God tells Israel to, to deal with and to deal with harshly. And then you've got all those what are referred to as imprecatory, imprecatory psalms. Those are the psalms where David says things like that, Lord, I hate your enemies. Deal with them justly. Blot them out. Those are called imprecatory psalms. And so I'm not saying that the Old Testament doesn't have some challenges in interpretation when it comes to how we should view those who set themselves up in opposition against us, but you will not find in the Old Testament an explicit rule, mandate, or statement that we are to hate our enemies. And even when the Old Testament speaks about those enemies of Israel, we have to remember that that, those were nationalistic enemies, What Jesus is drilling down to here in the hearts of the scribes and Pharisees and those who were listening to the Sermon on the Mount had to do with personal and private relationships. Jesus wipes off the table for us the thought that we can hate those who set themselves up in opposition to us. You see, the Jews considered themselves, well, they prided themselves they, they considered only other Jews who shared their privileged position, who shared their religious heritage, who shared their cultural distinctions, they viewed only those to be their neighbor. In other words, they had narrowed the scope of the command and they had added to it an assumption that was never instructed, namely the assumption that they were free to hate those who set themselves in opposition to them. As a matter of fact, the gospel forbids us to hate any individual or any group for any reason. If you can remember back to our study of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2 explicitly states that the mystery of the gospel is that God takes two differing people of two ethnic backgrounds, two cultural backgrounds, two language backgrounds, two worldview backgrounds, and the gospel makes those two one. That is what the gospel of reconciliation means and looks like. And so when we see things taking place in our world like we have seen in recent days in Charlottesville, and that wasn't the first time, where you have a group of people who set themselves up as being supreme over another group of people and condemning them, and hating them, that's the antithesis of the gospel. That's the antithesis of Ephesians chapter 2, the mystery of the gospel, because the gospel tears down the wall of hostility and makes the two men one in Christ. Spurgeon, in his commentary on this passage, notes that the addition of the words, and hate your enemy, are a parasitical growth, like a parasite on God's law. God did not teach a double standard of morality that distinguished between the way that we were to relate to those that we consider to be our neighbors as compared to those we consider to be our enemies. God told us to deal with them exactly the same, and that is to love your neighbor. Now, that raises the question, who's your neighbor? Who's your neighbor? The answer Every living being, human being, is your neighbor. Anyone with need is your neighbor. Another man with a pulse is your neighbor. Another woman with a pulse is your neighbor. Not all the scribes and Pharisees, as a matter of fact, were mistaken about this. You'll remember in Mark chapter 12, when Jesus is 
is kind of prodded at it, and they ask him the question, Jesus, tell us which is the greatest commandment. And Jesus says, well, first, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it, love your what? Love your neighbor as yourself. And then it's interesting, in Mark chapter 12, one of the Pharisees replies to Jesus. And he says, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he, God, is one, and there's no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as his self is not much more than all the whole of the burnt offerings and sacrifices. So not all the scribes and the Pharisees were confused about this. They knew what was right. God has placed his law on the hearts of all men. We have a conscience. We know what is right from what is wrong. Now, that conscience can be ill-informed. and Sin oftentimes causes that, a marring or or a, a misinforming of the conscience. But God has written his law on the hearts of all men. So that we know what is right and we know what is wrong. We have an intrinsic, because God has put it there, understanding that all men are made in God's image. That when I stare into the eyes of another human being, I'm staring into the eyes of an image bearer. And that I'm no better. I'm no better culturally. My my people group is no better. My worldview is no better. My religious distinction is no better. And that doesn't mean that there's a truth and a non-truth by any means. But it does mean that supremacy and hate are wiped off the table. It's not an option for us. I want you also to notice that love here I mean, Jesus says, love your neighbor. Love here. It's, it's agape love. Love is a decision before it's a feeling or an emotion. It's a decision of the will. And so when Jesus tells us to love our neighbor, he's telling us to make a marked decision to treat our enemy even, because our enemy is inclusive of our neighbors with goodwill. It's easy to treat those who love you with goodwill, Jesus says, but treat those who hate you with goodwill because they're also your neighbor. They're also your neighbor. There's a marked difference between what it means to like a person and to love a person. To like someone is to relate to them with a certain set of emotional feelings, but to love is not primarily a matter of feelings. It's primarily a matter of the will. You see, in your flesh, you will rarely, and I will rarely, if ever, feel like loving your enemy. Amen? We rarely feel that way. Well, thank goodness the call here is not to wait until we feel that way to do it. It's to do it and then let your feelings catch up. Jesus is telling us here. Furthermore, because love is a matter of the will and not feelings, it means that it's always possible to love a person. You may say to yourself, I just can't bring myself to love that person. No, you just won't love that person. Or I just won't love that person. Because agape love is a decision of the will more than it is feelings, that means that we can never say, I cannot love that person. No matter how they've injured us, no matter how much they've set themselves up in opposition to us, no matter how great an enemy they are of ours, we can make a calculated, thoughtful, obedient decision to love them. That means to render them good. C.S. Lewis once said, don't waste your time bothering whether you can love your neighbor. Act as if you did. And as soon as we do this, we'll find one of the greatest secrets. When you behave as if you did love someone, 
you'll presently come to love him. Or you'll presently come to love her. Act as if you did. Treat them in a loving way. And let your emotions catch up. You see, the worldly man treats certain people kindly because he likes them. But the Christian, the Christian on the other hand, trying to treat everyone kindly, finds himself liking more people as he goes on because he loved them first instead of waited to like them first. But that word agapeo, to love, means there, it describes an unconditional, sacrificial pursuit of goodwill towards another. Think for a moment. Maybe you could write down, if you have one, the name of an enemy on your bulletin this morning. Are you treating that person with an unconditional, sacrificial pursuit of good, no matter how they treat you? No matter if your pursuit of good towards that person is ever received, no matter if your pursuit of good towards that person is ever acknowledged, no matter if your pursuit of good towards that person is ever thanked. Agape love is to do it anyway. It's the love that God is and that God demonstrates supremely in supreme form at the cross. It loves even when the object of love is hateful or unlovely in response. It loves irrespective of whether it's deserved. It's even persistent when there's ample reasons to discourage it. Does that describe your love towards your enemies? Or just those people who are difficult in your life? It's a love that exists entirely apart from the possibility or expectation of ever being loved back. That is the love that is to characterize the lives of God's children, not only towards our neighbor, in the narrow sense, those who love you, but also toward your neighbor in the broad sense in which Jesus puts his finger on here, and that is towards your enemy, the one who hates you. Jesus calls us to love our neighbor, which includes our Enemies. How you doing there, friends? How you doing there? Number two. Love for your enemy is a demonstration that you belong to the Father. Let me draw your attention to the first phrase of verse 45. Jesus goes right on here and he says, So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. This is an interesting little statement that Jesus makes here. If we look back just one verse and we pick up verse 44, here's the flow of Jesus' thought. He says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, comma, not a period, not a new sentence, comma, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Now, it almost sounds, we have to be careful when things sound a particular way, but it almost sounds as if you do this, that is, love and pray for your enemies, then you will be this, that is, sons of your Father who is in heaven. That's not what Jesus is saying here. It's not what Jesus is saying here. When he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He's not just saying if you love your enemies, then then your righteousness with God is, is met, is taken care of. It's not what Jesus is saying. It's important that we understand that the focus of this verse is not on attaining a relationship with God, but rather rather on being a person who shares the characteristics of God. That's what Jesus is dealing with here in verse 45a. 
You see, Jesus uses a common Hebrew idiom here when he says sons of, that you may be sons of. Circle that, put quotes around that, bracket that if you helps you to think about it here. And Jesus says that you may be sons of. That's a common Hebrew idiom that Jesus is using there. We use the same idiom when we say things like, like father, like son, or he's just a chip off the old block, or she's a spitting image of her mama. We use the exact same idiom when we say things like that. What Jesus is saying here is that when we love our enemies and we pray for those who persecute us, or those who mistreat us, or those who speak ill of us, then we are acting like God, who is our Father, because He also graciously gives good things. We'll see sunshine and rain here in just a moment, even to those who rebel against Him. And So He's not saying you earn your salvation. He's not saying you become a son of God by loving your enemies. He's saying you show yourself to be like your Father when you act like He acts. You show yourself to be a chip off the old block when you think like he thinks, when you speak like he speaks, and when you act like he acts. You demonstrate the fact that you belong to him. You don't earn your belonging. How are you doing there? Are you demonstrating to a lost and dying world who you belong to? Or do we look a whole lot more like the world in which we live? I hope that we are growing as individuals and subsequently as a local church in bearing more and more resemblance to our Father. We will garner ourselves many more opportunities to proclaim the gospel and we will garner ourselves individuals who have a a better disposition to listen and hear the gospel if we are being like our Father than if we are speaking like our Father and acting in a different way. That's incongruent. It's incompatible. That, that's what the world looks at when they look at some of us and they say, just a bunch of hypocrites. They're all that way. No, they're not all that way. Are there some that are that way? Absolutely. Are we that person at times? We are. Every single one of us, without exception. But we want to be growing in what we say and what we do, being congruent Give us many more opportunities to share the gospel with a lost and dying world. How much do you look like your daddy? We're a work in progress, right? It's Philippians 1.6, Paul said, Being confident in this, that he who began a good work in you will, it's not left up for debate, he will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Finish this sentence. Much time in God's word results in much resemblance to God's son. I would suggest that that's where we start. Let your hearts and minds be saturated in the Word of God. You'll speak and you'll act a whole lot differently when you walk out those glass double doors and into the world in which we live. Love for your enemies is a demonstration that you belong to the Father, that you're a chip off the old block, so to speak. Number three, love for your enemy is a reflection of God's common grace. Love for your enemy is a reflection of God's common grace. 
Look at the second half of verse 45. Jesus goes on here and he says, For he, that is God, makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on both the just and the unjust. Okay. Theologians have long made a very clear distinction between God's effectual saving grace That is the grace that is bestowed upon those whom he chose before the foundation of the world to become his children. I would reference you back to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 7. And the distinction between God's common grace, that is the grace of God that is shown to all, even to those who oppose him. Okay? There's a distinction between God's saving grace and what we would refer to as his common grace. What we see taking place in verse 45b is God's common grace. The fact that God causes his son to rise on the ungodly, the fact that God causes showers of rain, sustaining rain to fall on the unrighteous, the fact that God gives us relationships, both believers and unbelievers, are able to have relationships. The fact that God blesses us with marriage, family, children, food that tastes good, modern medical technology. All those things are God's common grace. We deserve not one of them. But God does not distinguish between the righteous and the unrighteous as to who those blessings are bestowed upon. God gives them freely, without discrimination, to all men. God bestows those good gifts to all men. The sun doesn't shine exclusively on the good. The rain doesn't pass over the evil. God shares his good things even with those who oppose him. Now, notice the language here. Jesus says, he, God, makes his son. Notice that? Circle that word, his, there. Notice whom it belongs to. He makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good. You see, the shining of the sun isn't something that's to be understood as simply occurring naturally. No, God is being very decisive here. God is displaying volition and intentionality in in bestowing good gifts, even to the unrighteous and the unjust. The sun rising doesn't just happen naturally. It's not just laws of nature. God is being good. We don't deserve it. Consider also the frequency of the sun's rising. It's daily. God doesn't just bless his enemies once on occasion and then wash his hands of them. And just wash his hands of of kindness and benevolence towards them. Instead, he blesses them daily. Again, even though we don't deserve it. Now, let me ask you a question. Here's Here's a pointed prick question. If God lets his light shine before all men, why don't we? If God lets his light shine, if he causes his sun to rise on the righteous and on the unrighteous, then why don't we let our light shine, specifically, particularly, in our love even for our enemies, even for those who don't deserve it? Verse 45 suggests that our love, specifically for our enemies, creates a climate, so to speak, of blessings that makes it a whole lot easier to win our enemies and to make them our friends. How you respond 
to your enemy is really, really important. Because how you respond has the ability, and God is sovereign over this response in the hearts of our enemies. But how you respond has the ability to turn further, turn off an enemy, or to entreat an enemy. Verse 45 suggests again that our love creates a climate of change, a climate of blessings that make it easier to win our enemies and to make them our friends. You see, our love, specifically towards our enemies, is like the sunshine and the rain that the Father sends so graciously. Someone once said this, God has really given us five Gospels. Now, hear what I'm about to say. I'm not about to preach heresy, okay? Just listen. Someone's once said, God has really given us five Gospels. There's the Gospel according to Matthew. There's the Gospel according to Mark. There's the Gospel according to Luke. There's the Gospel according to John. And then there's the Gospel according to you. How are we doing there? How are we doing there at displaying the goodness and the gracious and the kindness and the benevolence of our God who intentionally causes his son to rise and his reign to fall both on the righteous and on the unrighteous? You are the closest that some men and some women will ever get to Jesus Christ. Just consider that for a moment. You're the closest that some individuals will ever come to Jesus. What do they see in you? What do they hear in you? Where do they see you go? What do they see you click on? What do they see you read? Movies do they see you watch? How do they see you speak to your children? How do they see you work in the workplace? really important. It's really important. If they don't see Christ in us, specifically Christ's love in us, they may never see it. They may never see it. So, how then? How then are we to love our enemies? Jesus has said here, of course, he's speaking the prevailing thought of the day. You have heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. They added they added the hate your enemy there. That was never commanded in the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus raised the bar when he said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecuted. So he included our enemies in our neighbors. He tells us that when we're loving our enemies, we're being like him. We're demonstrating his likeness to a lost and dying world. And then when we love our enemies, we're being a reflection of God's common grace, even to those who don't deserve it. But how? How do we? How can we walk out of here and and put some feet, so to speak, on what it means to love our neighbor as ourself? Well, flip back over to Luke chapter 6. Maybe keep your finger there in Matthew 5, but flip over to Luke chapter 6. Specifically, verse 27. And you'll see that Luke, in his account here, adds a couple of things. What Matthew tells us is to bless those who curse you and pray for those who persecute you. But Luke adds a couple of things. Look at Luke chapter 6, verse 27. Jesus speaking here. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. So, Four ways. If we, if we take a, a synthesis of Luke 6.27 and 
in our text here in Matthew, and we, we put them together here, there's four specific ways, and there are a myriad of others, but here are four, four specific ways that Jesus tells us that we can demonstrate God's love to a lost and dying world, specifically to those who oppose us, to our enemy. A, on your outline there, is to do good to those who hate us. And again, I've already said, love is less an emotion and more of an act of the will. It's a decision. So that we can never say, I can't love that individual. We must say, if we're speaking biblically, I refuse to love that person. I won't love that person. What is love? I'll give you a simple definition here. Let's say love is active kindness. Love is active kindness or benevolence in action. So when Jesus tells us to do good to those who hate us, we must consider how we can show kindness to the one who wants to do us harm. When your enemy is seeking to harm you, what Jesus is saying is, is that you in that moment are to seek to do good to your enemy. In the moment that they are seeking your harm, in the moment they're seeking your demise, in the moment they're plotting behind your back or speaking behind your back, you are instead to think about, consider how you might do good to those who hate you. Now, here's a challenge that I have for you. I would encourage you to go home this week and put together a list, five or seven, eight to ten, however many you can, can, can think of ways that you specifically Knowing your current situation, knowing your current relationships, knowing your sphere of influence, knowing those whom God has brought into your life, whether friend or perceived foe, how can you do good to those who hate you? How can you do good to your enemy? I would encourage you to sit down and to think through that and then to put it into action. To prayerfully put it into action. The second thing that Luke tells us in his gospel there is that we're to bless those who curse us. The word bless there is eulageo. It's where we get our English word to eulogize. It means to speak well of. Boy, we don't have any problems speaking well of those who like us. We don't have any problems speaking well of our buddies. We don't have any problems at times speaking well of our spouses. At times we do have problems. But Jesus tells us to speak well of to eulogize, to bless the one who curses you. To speak well of the very person who speaks ill of you. You see, we oftentimes speak ill of those who mistreat us because we don't want anyone else to like them either. And it's, it's a way of payback, it's a way of punishment. And so we speak ill about the person who is our enemy. because We, don't want, any, we want everybody else to write them off too. Jesus says, no, eulogize, speak well of, bless Bless those who curse you. Again, I would encourage you to sit down and to flesh out how can you put this into practice in your specific situations, your specific life circumstances. Do good to those who hate you and bless those who curse you. Now we move back to Matthew's gospel. See on your outline is this. Jesus tells us to pray for those who persecute us. To pray for God or to pray to God for those who persecute us. 
Uh, The word prayer there, it means literally to pray to God or to bring our enemies before the face of the Father. That's what the word means there, to pray for. To bring your enemy before the face of the Father. To do so with your heart and with your words. Again, it's much easier to pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ, even the lost who seem to love you, because we all have lost friends that even like us, right? Not every lost person is our enemy. Not every lost person hates us. We all have lost friends that love us. But the command from Jesus' lips here is to pray for those who persecute you. That is to insult you or slander you or falsely accuse you or to mistreat you. That's what the word persecute means. It doesn't mean they have to hang you on a cross upside down like we saw Jesus' disciples, many of them, endure. To be persecuted can mean to be insulted, slandered, falsely accused, or just in a broad sense mistreated. In other words, if your enemy calls down destruction upon your head, expressing in their words their wish for your downfall, we as believers, according to Jesus' authoritative word to us here, must respond by calling down heaven's blessing upon them, declaring in words that we wish nothing but their good. This is difficult. This is difficult. It's a whole lot easier to sit in a controlled environment like this and to talk about it. Push is going to come to shove in about two minutes and 58 seconds. We walk out those doors. It's interesting to note the connection between our prayers and the affections of our heart. If you've ever noticed this. But God, in his wisdom and in his sovereignty, has designed prayer such that our heart oftentimes grows for the things or the people that we pray for. You ever notice that? You want to fall in love with a country or a language group or a people group, a lost people group of the world, start praying for one. Get you a copy of Operation World. If there's not one in our library, I got one in my office. I'll give it to you gladly. Start praying for a people group and you see what God doesn't do in your heart for that people group. Likewise, your enemy. If you commit to bringing your enemy before the face of the Father in continual, humble, prayer. You mark my words. You see what God doesn't do in your heart towards your enemy. You see if God doesn't begin to soften what began as hardness in your heart towards your enemy. You see if God doesn't follow the decision to love with the feelings that accompany it. Pray for your enemy. Pray for those who mistreat you. It's impossible to be genuinely consistent in prayer for someone without loving them. It's impossible. It's also impossible to go on praying for that person or those persons without discovering that our love for them grows and matures. And so again, this means that we don't wait. We don't wait to start praying for our enemies until we feel some sliver of love for them in our heart. Instead, we begin to pray for them before we're ever conscious of loving them and find that our heart will follow suit. Consider the prayer of Stephen for just a moment. And here we have Stephen in Acts chapter 7 being stoned to death. And he responds, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And the text goes on to say, and falling to his knees, he, Stephen, cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Wow. Put yourself in that position. Lord, don't hold their sin against them. To bless someone To return good for evil 
means that in a sense we desire for the one who hates us to be let off the hook for their hatred towards us. To be let off the hook for the way they've treated us. Now it's one thing to pray, God don't punish them quite so severely. It's a whole other thing entirely to say, God don't punish them at all. Don't hold their wrong against them. It's difficult. It's difficult. You see, true spirituality isn't seen in how much you do or how much you pray, but how you pray and for whom you pray. True spirituality is seen more so in how you pray and for whom you pray. Are you willing to get on your knees for the one who mistreats you? If not, the problem is is that we look a whole lot more like the Pharisees in this text than we do like Jesus. Jesus even himself seems to have prayed for his tormentors while the iron spikes were being driven into his hands and in his feet and as the tip of the razor-sharp spear was being thrust into his side. As a matter of fact, the imperfect tense of the Greek in Luke chapter 23, as Jesus is praying for those from the cross, suggests that Jesus kept on praying for them. He kept on praying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And so friends, here's my challenge for you. If the cruel torture of crucifixion could not silence our Lord's prayers for his enemy, then what pain, what pride, or what prejudice could justify the silencing of ours? Let me say just a few things about the content of our prayers here. What do we pray? Number one, I think we pray that God would graciously grant our enemy repentance. That God would grant the one who mistreats us saving grace. Secondly, that God would bless them. See, it takes minimal grace to pray, Lord, deal with my enemy, but it takes a whole lot of grace to pray, Lord, bless my enemy. And then third, what we see in Jesus and what we see in Stephen is we begin to pray, God, will you not hold their sin against them? Save them. Change their heart. If that's the content of our prayers, and there's more that could be said there, well, what's the consequences oftentimes of our prayers? When we begin to pray for our enemies, okay? What's the consequences of our prayers? Well, number one, God will answer. God always answers prayer, right? Sometimes he says yes, sometimes he says no, and sometimes he says not right now but your words never hit a glass ceiling. God always answers prayer. Consider the fact that Jesus praying for his enemies while he was nailed to the cross might have been partially responsible for the 3,000 people that were converted at the day of Pentecost. You ever consider that? Jesus praying, Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do, may be partially responsible for the 3,000 plus people that came to saving knowledge of Christ on the day of Pentecost. God answers prayers. You pray for the conversion of your enemy, you see what God might not do. Number two, consequences of your prayers. Well, one, your, uh, your enemy might just become your friend. Wouldn't be the first time this happened. You can sometimes win your enemies by loving them and praying for them. And then thirdly, and this is most important, you please God in doing so. In loving your enemy and praying for your enemy, you please God in doing so. You see, no matter how your enemy might respond to your love and prayers, there's no greater feeling in the world than knowing that you have pleased God. I mean, we can endure a thousand enemies if we know that we're pleasing God in the process, right? That should be our highest name, 2 Corinthians 5, 9. So whether we're at home or away, 
Whether we're at home in the flesh or away, we make it our aim to please him. You want a life verse? 2 Corinthians 5, 9 is a good one. Make it your aim to please him. And then we're to greet our enemies. won't say much here because we're coming to a close. But to greet means to embrace, to salute, or to, to welcome. Strictly speaking, it means nothing more than the exchange of a warm pleasantry. But oftentimes, a Jewish greeting was a sign of peace. And so other words, to greet another person was to, in effect, pray, God be with you. God be with you. You willing to greet your enemies like that? Friends, are we doing good to those who hate us? Are we blessing those who curse us? Are we praying for those who persecute us? And are we greeting those who are our enemies? Number four in your outline. And lastly, love for your enemy reveals a distinction from the world's ways. Love for your enemy reveals a distinction from the world's ways. Look at verses 46 and 47. Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors and do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not the Gentiles do the same? You see, loving your enemies, again, is a testimony. It's a loud testimony to a lost and dying world. Notice the question that Jesus asks here, though. And this is a penetrating question. What do you do more than others? No. What do you do more than others? What do you do more than others? Back there in left field, what do you do for others? It's a penetrating question. I mean, he's asking us here, how does your love for your enemies rise above that of tax collectors and Gentiles? What do you do more than others? The tax collectors, they were viewed as disloyal Israelites. They were, they were hired by the Roman government to tax Jews. And oftentimes what they would do is they would overtax and they would take the excess. And so they were, they were hated. But even tax collectors love tax collectors. And so Jesus is saying, if you do what they do naturally, then you don't show that there's been any supernatural work done in your heart. What do you do that is more? Remember, we have to remember that our righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. I mean, look, even the despicable tax collectors, they love their own kind. So how will your love show itself to be distinctive in the ones that you love? If you're only loving those who love you, if you're only showing love to your friends, you're no better than the loving tax collector. And the Gentiles, they were considered to be pagans. I mean, when... When the Pharisees are compared to tax collectors and Gentiles, I mean, this would have absolutely stung their ears when Jesus compared them. He said, you're just like them. You just love people who are just like you. You just love people whose religious distinctions are just like yours and speak just like you and eat what you eat and go where you go and dress like you dressed and and, and have the, the privileged position before God that you think you have. If you just love those people, you're just no better than the rest. But Jesus says, how is your love better? How do you go above and beyond what is expected? And then reward. We'll end here. Jesus tosses in here. He says, what reward do you have? Why do you suppose that Jesus throws in reward? Luke's account says, what credit is it to you? 
Well, this language harks back to the Beatitudes, does it not? When Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your, fill in the blank, reward in heaven. For great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You see, you don't get any reward. That's what Jesus is saying here. You don't get any reward for acting naturally, only for acting supernaturally. If you do what everybody else does, there's no reward for you. But if you love those even who hate you, you love the unlovable, then there's great reward for you. And don't be self-righteous and think, and I have to tell myself this too, don't be self-righteous and think that we're above the motivation or the enticement of reward. I mean, Paul longed for reward, did he not? First Corinthians chapter 9, he said, Do you not know that all runners run in the race, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may attain it. And then he goes on and he says, I, I beat my body. I don't run aimlessly. I don't box as the one beating the air, but I discipline my body. I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. And you ask, disqualified from what, Paul? Disqualified from the prize. Jesus himself was motivated by reward, was he not? He was motivated by the joy that was set before him. It was the joy of the Father that he would later receive that kept him going, that enabled him to endure the cross and its shame. Friends, how are we doing there? Is our life a distinction to what is seen in the world around us? Or do we just look the same?